Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Today, whether it's Marxism or neoclassical economics, labor is seen as adding value to a product or service. The more value you add, then supposedly the more you can get paid. So is there any evidence that that's right? Or is something else driving inequality? And why is it that people in office jobs, which are often meaningless, let's be honest, why do they earn more than those working in hospitals, saving lives, or picking food, which is also kind of important? And why is inequality wider in some places than others? And what can we do to reduce it? Or do we need to reduce it? This week, we ask, inequality, are we stuck with it? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. So, uh, Steve, let's start with a, a, a bit of Marx, right? Because he says right at the front of Das Kapital that an item's value is determined by the labour contained in creating it. That would mean, in theory, that unskillful labourers would make things more expensive, wouldn't it? Because they would spend more hours working on it. To which the answer is, of course, well, you pay them less or you automate their work, which would make them unemployed. Uh, they'd probably prefer to be paid less. So do we need low-paid workers to create things that would be too expensive to produce without them. And is that why we have inequality? Wow, you could actually get a job as a professor of economics after that spiel. <laughs> um, that, that's pretty much what they believe. And the ironic thing is it's actually probably anything. It's the exact opposite of that. You need expensive workers to get innovation. Uh, this is one of the fascinating things about the, the important question, uh, raising ourselves back to a country we were discussing just a moment ago. Why did the Industrial Revolution begin in Scotland? Did I get the accent right there? It'll do, yeah. So. It'll do, okay. okay. So, I'll, I'll see trying to so we Scottish were talking accent. about Scotland just before we started recording, yeah, absolutely. It was- and indeed, in the last episode too on, on, on the um, Scottish pound notes. Yeah, but the, one of the reasons why it began there was because labour was expensive. Mm. Uh, and you had, you had, of course, you had people making clothing in France, you had people making clothing in Scotland, but the wages were higher in Scotland. And back in those days, you had a spinning wheel uh, to turn your, yeah. your, your uh, you know, wool into, into thread and then you can make it into cloth. And there was one worker per spinning wheel. Anybody who's ever operated an old spinning wheel knows what I'm talking about there. And I've forgotten who it was who invented the spinning jenny, but that was originally uh, one device which could be turned by hand by one person, which would turn six wheels. Now, it, that, it took quite a while for it to be successfully invented. We're talking you know, manufacturing stuff out of wood and getting the bearings right and not having lubricating oil the way you were used to in modern machinery and so on. But it was finally done, and then the spinning jenny started taking over the manufacturing of cloth in Scotland. And then at some point, with the, with the, also with the invention of the... As it was James Watt, another Scotsman? Yeah, he was. Yeah, part of it. Uh, okay, James another Watt. one of the Enlightenment... Okay, now that was the, this original. There wasn't the first steam engine by any means. The difference was that he had a, a governor, I think, to 
reduce the, uh, the pressure when it got too high, and he had a separate chamber for cooling down the steam, so it made it far more efficient than the other uh, steam engines at the time. That was to pump yeah. the water out of the mines, and you then combined the spinning jenny with the steam engine, and you had the start, the true start of the Industrial Revolution. But yeah. the question is, why did that not happen in France? Well, it turns out the wages for French textile workers were far lower than the wage, wages for spinners in Scotland, and it was simply not economical. If you had six French workers, it cost you less to hire the six workers than it did to buy the spinning jenny and have one worker operating it instead. And in that right. situation, the French didn't innovate. So who gets to be more successful? The one with the higher wage costs, not with the lower wage costs. Right, the one with, with less inequality. And yet, if we look at uh, you know where we are now, um, I wonder whether, in fact, some people who uh, whose jobs are replaced by uh, automation to an extent or by mass production are finding that they have to lower their wages to survive. So say, for example, uh, I wanted fitted wardrobes in my bedroom. Or, you know, I don't, but my wife seems to think it's important. I can, get a, mm. I can get a carpenter in to do that, or I could go to Ikea, or I could get a divorce. One, but I don't want to do that one, so it's either go we to know Ikea. Which one is, we know which one is most expensive. <laughs> exactly. So let's stick with the first two. So, yeah. uh, And the cheapest one, obviously, is to go to Ikea or, or their equivalents. But, but before pre-packed furniture, I'd have no choice. I have to go to a carpenter or do it myself, which would be a disaster. So yeah. now automation has re- reduced the demand for the carpenter. So presumably they're going to charge less than they used to so because of progress their skill has been devalued even though the skill itself hasn't changed it's just the value of those wardrobes have been devalued by well i guess by competition and mass manufacturing so the the carpenter has been pushed down the inequality ladder hasn't he in that sense yeah and and, but but there's actually the interesting point about this is what's the long-term consequences of that because, again, if you look at the issue of the textile worker in Scotland, uh, then, yes, they get displaced initially, but it then means Scottish textiles are far more competitive with the rest of the world than French textiles, and suddenly you're selling English textiles in France. And, uh, of course, the real destruction for the rest of the world was when those textiles started being sold in India uh, instead and wiped out the Indian textile industry. Um, mm. But but it, it leads to the, the innovation itself in Scotland leads to a you know, dislocation of workers in that industry, but a growth of other 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 industries as well. And so long as you have enough bargaining power for the workers in right. terms of, then they end up sharing a part out of it. And this is actually go back to Marx again. Uh, this is a, fa- a fascinating part of. Uh, Volume 1 of Dust Capital was Marx speculates about precisely that process. Uh, this is in Chapter 25, Section 3 of Volume 1 of Capital, for those who want to take a look at it. And, Just off the top uh, of your head. Yeah, I know this one fairly well. And in it, uh, Marx says that uh, he talks about a, a situation where there's innovation going on um, and, and says that if there's, um, if there's an inc- if, you, if you have a high level of employment, then that, that leads to high levels of wages because workers have bargaining power. Because they've got bargaining power, uh, there's a transfer of income from the, from, the work, from the capitalists to the workers. Capitalists are now earning less than they wish to earn. Their response is to invest less. The economy slows down. Unemployment uh, rises, reducing the workers' bargaining power. And then he says you finally get back to the same point. Whether the level of wages be as high as greater than or less than the previous level of wages. 
So he was quite capable in this particular section of capital. Normally he spoke talk about uh, the wages being equal to what he called the value of labour power. So he had no variation in the wages at all. But there he was talking about a class struggle cycle between workers and capitalists over the, at the wage level, where the wage could increase or decrease over time. And what has happened for most of the history of industrial capitalism is that wage level has increased in that particular struggle. So workers have been, in a sense, symbiotic benefits beneficiaries from the industrialization right. that's been inspired by high wages uh, at various times in the economic cycle. So long as you've got that bargaining power, if you haven't got that bargaining power, then there aren't unskilled workers or sk- workers who you know just haven't had the, the, the right education find themselves looking for jobs which are not going to be replaced by machines and they and for that they almost will have to accept less pay to make it more economic to do their job rather than having them be, be replaced by machines. Yeah, but that's... If they, if they push you know, if they push for higher wage, and we hear this so many times, don't we, from, uh, from, from people trying to, for example, argue against minimum wage. If they push for higher wages, they could lose their well, jobs. Well, in fact, the higher wages also come up as part of the income uh, that, that finances the purchases of some of these goods. Um, you know, the, 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 there's the feedback effect as well. But what's been left out of the argument, this is again back, back to my usual hobby horse, is that you're leaving out one social class from the whole equation, and that's bankers. And also rentiers, yeah. so landlords. And the, when, when you look at the, the history of, uh, and the empirics of what's going on with these uh, changes in income distribution over time, uh, one thing which has popped out for me is that the, a high level of debt actually causes, that's what causes a fallen worker's share of income. So the workers end up being the ones who pay for the higher level of debt. Effectively, they're the ones who pay for the rentiers. They end, the workers end up with a lower share of income, even if the capitalists are the ones doing the borrowing of money. And this turns up in the empirical data. There's been a fall in the income share going to workers in America, an increase in the income going to, to the finance sector, and the share going to actual industrial capitalists remain pretty much constant. So it's not a, it's not, it's not a working-class struggle versus a capitalist versus worker, even in that sense... Uh, Marx or in the empirical data shows as well that both sides benefit in terms of improving the um, level of industrial output per head over time as well. But in terms of the class struggle, right. it ends up being the, it's workers versus bank capitalist, workers versus banker, not workers versus capitalist. Because the companies are borrowing to, uh, to to build their infrastructure, but similarly, those lower paid workers are having to borrow more as well, aren't they, to to be able to afford to to survive, to to particularly if they want to. A mortgage. So I'm imagining compared to, for example, when uh, Keynes was around back in the 1930s, you know, when he said we'd all be working 15 hours a week and uh, because our jobs would be automated and we'd you know, be living lives of leisure by and large for most of the week. Um, uh, he was ignoring that factor, wasn't he? That, that, that you know, we'd, we'd also have massive debt. Companies would be investing and the finance sector would be uh, making, the, making the cream of the money. Well, I'm, I'm actually seeing that and actually where I'm living right now in terms of the cost of living and the cost of housing because this is, again, one of Michael Hudson's points. And I, I've, got, I've got mathematical and logical arguments behind my position here, but Michael's been making this case empirically for a couple of decades now, and that is that the people who pay for the higher uh, housing costs are workers, because mm. you, what you have, you, you have, you need, and it, well, it's it's the rentiers that make the money when you let house prices get too high, because people find themselves having high, large mortgages they have to service out of their wages. They therefore need higher wages to service them in the first place, 
uh, and rents are also very high. Again, you need high wages to do it. So when he compares, you know, he says, why is, is China and why is Thailand, for example, more competitive in manufacturing than uh, England and America? It's because the level of debt's lower here and you don't need as much money to buy a property and you don't need as much money to pay rent. So you, your costs can be lower, uh, even though your standard of living is not that much not, not that much lower. So I see this all the time right now. I'm, as I'm living in a house where I'm paying the equivalent of £250 a month for a two-storey, four-bedroom house in a fairly nice town in Thailand. Um, what on earth would I be paying for that in England? I'd be paying, what, uh, rather than £200, I'd be paying, what, £3,000? Mm. And that means, and consequently, an English yeah. worker has to earn 20 times what a Thai worker does. Well, guess who's competitive with manufacturing in that case? When you, when you price the cost of the rentier class into your cost of production, that's a major part of what you make uncompetitive with another nation. And if we went back to that 15 hours of, of work that Keynes was uh, was forecasting, I mean, it's it's hard to have income disparity if you're spending most of your life not working, isn't it? Except for except for as you say, you know. Who owns the land? Who owns the uh, who owns the assets? Uh, yeah. and, and, and who can live off it? And this and this is again again Michael Hudson makes the point all the time. So does Henry George that it's actually the rentier class that's the problem in capitalism, not the capitalists and not the workers. And when we when we focus on a worker capitalist struggle, which is the sort of thing you opened with, which is fairly standard economics, mm. we're ignoring it's not it's not the workers, it's not the capitalists. You need to. Uh, you know, tame or eliminate, it's the rentiers you need to tame and eliminate. And that, again, back to a previous conversation, is a major factor behind the idea of a debt jubilee. It's, it's people who own paper claims on the rest of us, which force us to work as hard as we have to. We're not doing the 15 hours per week that Keynes fantasised about we're doing 50. Uh, what are those 35 of those or 40 of those hours involved in? Servicing our level of debt and paying our rents. And, yeah. and again, Ricardo had the same idea. Ricardo, the whole idea that Ricardo pushed comparative advantage had bucker all to do with believing in, that it actually was ch- uh, better to redistribute production around the world. He, there's a, a wonderful passage in the book, and I, I can't recall the page number as I can for Marx, but he says, <laughs> throughout this work, it has been in mind, if it is show, S-H-E-W, show, uh, that there cannot be a... Uh, a rise in profits except for a fall in the cost of necessities. And those necessities he meant were basically food for workers because he argued workers fundamentally receive a subsistence wage. They buy, they earn enough to pay, uh, buy the corn. So if you can reduce the cost of corn, it will increase the amount of money going to capitalists and that will enable the economy to grow faster and grow for longer. And how do you reduce the cost of corn? You throw open international trade. So rather than having relying upon British um, farmers alone to provide the, the corn, which in those days, of course, was wheat. Rather than relying upon them to provide the, the wheat, you get them from the French and you drop the price. The rentiers get less money. The workers get the same equivalent real income. More goes to the capitalists than they can invest. So mm. in, in this sense, even Except though... Except the workers who are picking the corn. Yeah, well, they, they still get paid the corn. They still get paid in corn. This is actually... Uh, he had what's called a corn economy model. Mm. Um, so, yeah, but so fundamentally, it's the rentiers that are the problem in capitalism, not the workers and not the capitalists. And if you, want to, if you want to get more competitive over time, you want to reduce the burden that rentiers put on the economy, not the burden of either high wages or high profits. So um, debt and the finance sector aside, what I don't get is how we have elevated seemingly unproductive jobs to the higher end 
of the inequality ladder. So you can be working uh, hard on something which is uh, which is clearly defined, clearly doing some good. You're a tradesperson or you're a factory line worker or you're a mechanic or whatever you are. It's clear what your job is. There's a whole load of people. Of course, David Graeber writes about it from the LSE, writes about it in his book, Bullshit Jobs. The, mm. the flunkies who are there to make their bosses feel better about themselves. You know, jobs that were, could disappear if the employed bosses were more at one with themselves, for example. But you see all of these jobs uh, where, you know, it's you know, just yes people in companies, for, for example. I mean, I reckon most large corporations, you could probably uh, cut out half the workforce and it would make no difference to the productivity. And yet these are very often well-paid middle management jobs. How come those people, evidently producing very little, are getting paid a great deal while people who are doing all the hard work are getting paid very little. And how, how does that even happen? Well, that that's, that actually is what makes a nonsense of the whole idea you get paid according to the, your marginal productivity, which is the neoclassical yeah. theory, okay? And that's also the justification you, know, you were using it early on, this fairly standard economics uh, for inequality. Uh, in fact, there's the best explanation I've seen of inequality isn't David's work. The David's work is absolutely excellent on that front, of course. Why do the bullshit jobs exist? Why do they get paid poor much? The best explanation is given by a guy called Blair Fix, literally F-I-X last name, Blair Fix, and he said it's all due to hierarchy. We don't get paid according to our contribution to production. We get paid according to where we stand in a hierarchy. And the higher up you are in a hierarchy, the more you get paid. And uh, I, I, I met Blair in a very roundabout way because I was he, he'd read my work on inequality and my work on debt and mathematical modelling of uh, cycles in capitalism. And he actually chose me to be his PhD examiner. And the reason I accepted the invitation to examine his PhD was because he was working under a... a he was being supervised by a guy called Jonathan Nietzsche. Nietzsche and Bircher, I think, are the two names, who are two uh, leading non-Orthodox sort of ex-Marxian, in some ways, academics in Canada, whose work I respected and I thought I'd like to meet them. So for that reason, I agreed to examine Blair's PhD. As it turns out, neither of them were at the actual uh, examination. But Blair's work is, I think, one of the most, probably the most brilliant piece of original writing from somebody who was a new entrant into a field that I've ever read in economics. And he explained income inequality, wealth inequality, structure of society simply on the basis of hierarchy and saying people get paid according to how high they're up in a hierarchy and the hierarchy follows a power law that if you have a level of the society, if you have an organisation with one person that there's only one level of hierarchy. If you have an organisation with five, there'll be one person at the top and four at the next level. Uh, if they themselves each have four subordinates, then you're going to have 21 people in the firm and there'll be a, a 16 4 one structure to the company. And you said you can use the same power law distribution to say that people who are at the second level will be earning a multiple of the income of those at the lower level. And, and this hierarchy, the larger the hierarchy gets, the higher the pay level. And that made sense of the, the data inside companies and even between between in different societies so hierarchy is what explains it so does that the existence of that hierarchy because i mean you could look and say well there's people doing work which is it's difficult to see whether they're actually creating anything useful whereas there's other people like the carpenter or the manual worker mm. uh, where you can you can you can really see what they're producing so you can so for those people you know the idea that there's a relationship between the value of the good and the money we pay people involved in creating it plus the capital 
makes sense. But when you look at those bullshit jobs, you go, well, what, what is the relationship between the value of, the, uh, of a good and the money involved in paying people? Well, I guess it's because to create that good, you need the scale, and the scale demands that hierarchy. Would that be the argument? Partially, yeah. I mean, one of the problems about talking about it in terms of hierarchy is it's hard to say how do, how do you go about reducing the inequality if it's excessive. And um, like my explanation for inequality is different to Blair's. That comes down to the, the fact that the debt, higher level of debt in the economy is paid for by the workers. So you have a, the high level of the debt, you have a distribution of income from workers to capitalists, to bankers, pardon me, bypassing capitalists. And if you reduce the debt level, you reduce the inequality as well. Uh, and it's a good idea to do it. In terms of hierarchy, how do you say you should have a smaller hierarchy or have more hierarchies? It may be that the size scale of the hierarchy is necessary to manage whatever productive enterprise you're talking about so it becomes it's both an explanation but it also gives you a dilemma and by the way on that front if anybody hasn't seen Blair's work uh, he has a Patreon page um, I think it's called Economics from the Top Down and a blog with the same name and I highly recommend looking at his work Mm. Uh, he'll answer this particular question better than I can in fact we should have him on the show one day yeah, we should. Yes, yeah, that's like a great idea. Mm. Look, look, would it be fair to say that countries that have got high disparities of income are going to grow faster, at least in the early stages of growth, whereas more developed countries, uh, high disparity can actually slow domestic consumption. So that's that's going to slow growth. And so I'm thinking of, for example, the growth we've seen in China with a high income disparity, uh, which obviously, you know, their, 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 their selling point at the beginning was that their workers work for cheap. Uh, whereas present day United States and the UK, people are demanding higher salaries, so we're getting less disparity. And if we had higher disparity, then we'd we'd have slower domestic consumption. So it, it's a difference, isn't it, between the stages of a of a of a of a country from being very export focused to domestic focused, and the 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 role that disparity of income plays at each of those stages. That's actually a hypothesis called the Kuznet curve, uh, which argues that there's Uh, you'll start from a a low level of inequality, you'll have increasing wealth up to a certain point, then decreasing inequality on the other side. Um, It it has broken down in the modern time, uh, the level mm-hmm. of inequality, and that's why I think the debt issue is a major part of the factor behind it. And there, the best work has been done by Jamie Galbraith, son of J.K. Galbraith. And Jamie, looking at the level of inequality, he's developed what's called the Thiel Index. That's T-H- I think it's T-H-E-I-L, it might be T-H-I-E-L, Thiel Index, to show the level of inequality. And it's a very, very clever statistical technique which can work out the inequality in a society from tax returns right down to the county level in America. So it gives you a very detailed pattern of where inequality right. exists and what are the changes over time. And he's found that uh, the Kuznets curve no longer explains it in America. It's become too extreme. The inequality hasn't fallen and it's actually rising now. And that goes against the Kuznets hypothesis so uh, it sounds appealing mm. but um, uh, and it's, but not no, but not, no, but not, not supported by fact not supported by <laughs> fact yeah what do you and, and in fact yeah. if, if Donald Trump wants to bring back more businesses to the United States won't he need to reduce those manufacturing costs which would mean you know more well, push on on labor costs no, in other words greater inequality no i think you actually need more inequality to make it actually worth your while to want to do it i mean the um it, 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 that's again back to the scottish analogy that the reason innovation occurred firstly in scotland because the wages were higher than they were in the rest of the world that no. you actually want to have that technological development happening and you don't get that this one reason the again there's right but he's saying he's bringing back manufacturing to bring back manufacturing jobs what you're saying is no 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 bring back manufacturing but there's not going to be jobs because there's going to be greater automation. 
that's, I think, inevitable. But um, mm. you, you don't want this. It, one of the reasons for the Civil War in America was that the, the, the South was making money very nicely, thank you, out of slave labour. And it, it wasn't... A, and, and, and that's for that reason. It's one reason it lost the Second World War because it didn't innovate as much as the North did. The North is the part of the world that produces Gatling guns and so on. So innovation is driven by costs, by high costs of... Of, of labor and you you want that feedback to give you growth over time now if you let people exploit slave labor or you relocate production overseas uh, you might do very well out of it but you stop innovating and that's been the real dilemma for the american economy outside pockets like you know, like my, my elon musk fanboy stuff and maybe amazon as well uh, the level of innovation in the states is nothing like it was back in the 50s and 60s and over time america's paid the price for that yeah, and yet labourers. I'm looking at, uh, at, at some data published by the Conference Board in the United States. It's a few years ago. It compares labour costs per hour for manufacturing uh, against an index of um, 100 for the USA. Mm. In Canada, it, and this is you know purchasing parity. Uh, in in Canada, it was 77 versus 100 in the USA. Uh, and um, in the UK, it was 73, and it was it's falling. Now, I'd imagine the US is less unionized, so you would have thought, in fact, that, you know, the, the labor costs would be lower in the United States, but much higher. Um, so how do we explain that? I mean, and that would, that would mean that you'd assume, therefore, there, there would be more reason for more innovation and automation in the US than anywhere because their labor costs are so much higher. But that and then is what partly what's driven the, the offshoring. So that, it, it, yeah. you, if you saw you know, a massive level of innovation in America in the 50s and 60s, um, I'm certainly not saying America ceased being innovative, but it's mainly begun to got into financial innovation and offshoring production rather than doing it domestically. Uh, but yeah, if you had to say which was a more degraded industrial structure, you'd have to say the UK rather than the USA. So those high, you know, relatively higher wages for American workers when they actually have a manufacturing jobs. Uh, is is a sign of the, the the pressure that led to the innovation as well. So there is the problem with having very little inequality is that people's expectations rise up. So you know the latest example of that is the UK, where we normally have seventy to eighty thousand seasonal workers who come to pick berries and pick apples and pick lettuce and whatever else we manage to grow in this country. Uh, now we're hearing that there's only a few hundred have actually filed for this role locally. And of course, they can't they can't fly in because of the the coronavirus. So there's going to be a lot of fruit left to rot in the fields because the pay is too low to attract local workers, despite rising unemployment, despite the fact there's a whole lot of people being left out of work because of the, the virus. So, I mean, they could be paid more, but then that, uh, you know, presumably it's it, it's been automated as far as possible. That's going to make food more expensive. Perhaps food should be more expensive so that we pay higher wages to the people who are picking it up. But then that obviously has the flow on effect that we have less disposable income, given that food is such a large chunk of, uh, of our expenditure. But again, we come back to the rent issue and the, and the um, mortgage servicing issue. You can't afford low wages in the UK if you have mm. to service rent and service um, um, mortgages here. You, have, you, you simply can't afford to accept a low wage. Whereas if you don't have those costs, however you manage to avoid them, then you can accept the low wage. So again, like I, I see, in, again, I, I go shopping in Thailand and it's just ridiculous. I go out and buy dinner. It's 40 baht, which is one quid. 
Um, yeah. I'm, I'm talking one damn good Thai meal. Now, uh, the, you know, the, of course, that's cheap for me, but the question is how can somebody sell me a meal for a quid and make a, make a sustainable living themselves? And the only answer is they're paying less for everything because there's less rental charges all the way down the system. So to me, the, so the problem isn't so much the, um, uh, whether you fly workers in from overseas or not. It's when you've got these high costs, which have all been built into the highly leveraged societies we live inside, which are largely due to the rentier class, that's where you become uncompetitive. So what, which is the more productive society then? I'm confused by this. Is it Thailand where everything is produced so much cheaper because you haven't got those, those liabilities to the rentier class? Or is it a, a country like uh, the UK where everything costs more? Or has productivity got nothing to do with it? I think it's nothing to do with it. I think it's, again, it's, it's the, the, the absence of rentier costs here, relatively speaking. I mean, again, the fact that you can buy a property here uh, for the equivalent of £100,000 and a very good one, um, that means that the, you don't have the same rental costs overall throughout the entire society. The costs are lower. Um, the manufacturing can be as good or certainly in the case of food far better and uh, and you have a better standard you have a much higher standard of living than the income disparity would imply and it's largely because that income disparity is largely reflecting too high rental costs too high rentier costs in the so-called advanced economy so the the opening question in the title of this podcast is actually inequality are we stuck with it i mean is it um uh, you know, if 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 we followed uh, uh, Keynes, you know, back in the 1930s when we'd all be living this life of leisure, presumably, uh, you know, uh, if if we didn't have the rentier class, then uh, we would we would have reduced inequality. But are we stuck with it? And it is is it just because we're, we're, who we're, owns what? We're stuck with some inequality no matter what. And there's actually again, the mentions work one of my PhD students, Tim Gooding. Uh, Tim is a brilliant multi-age, middle multi-age modeler, and what he's found if you start with an equal distribution of income, where income is just a sort of exchange between individual agents in this in this landscape, you get ultimately a, an income distribution called a Boltzmann distribution, which has inequality built into it. Some people have many more links than others and get a much higher level of income. So there's just the fact. What, that, why is that? Uh, what kicks that off? What's what's it, what starts it, that it, model it, to show that it, disparity? It's just a, a random number of how many people you interact with, and then how much right. you accumulate. Courtesy of that. Like if you imagine uh, in a British society and having people income being just an exchange between individuals in a society, a rock singer is going to get a lot more exchanges from other people, income coming in, than they've got to come going out. So they're likely to accumulate the money. Uh, it, it is just if we have a, a slight valuation preference for one particular profession, that will be amplified in overall society. So they'll become wealthy and others are relatively poor. And that that is something I think which is inevitable in an exchange-based society. It's when it gets amplified by these long-term rentier charges that I think you get not just inequality but an unsustainable level and one that actually causes the society to break down in various ways. So inequality we'll always have with us. We just have too much now because they have too much going to rentiers. And this has been a perpetual theme in capitalism literally since the days of David Ricardo. And that rock star, of course, will have used a chunk of their money to buy uh, investments so they become part of that rentier class in a way themselves. And mm. they, uh, yeah. So, they were, so they're charging back to all the people who are dipping into their uh, meagre funds to buy their records. Indeed. They're hitting them, hitting them twice. Yep. <laughs> it's a crazy world we live in, isn't it? It is indeed a crazy so the, world, yeah. 
And uh, look, I mean, we haven't got time to talk about it, but maybe next time when we get back to talking about the coronavirus, but, you know, the, the haves and have-nots, obviously there's a whole new definition of that. There's those people who've managed to keep their job and those who haven't. And I wonder how long those people have lost their jobs, how long they're going to be paying that back for. And those in uh, countries where they've defeated the virus versus those where it's still, um, it's still prevalent. Absolutely. That's another one too as well. Yeah. Speaking, yeah, speaking yeah. of somebody now, okay. living, one where they, are, where they have defeated it. Yeah. Hallelujah, Australia and New Zealand. Just uh, I know. build a wall. Well, you don't need to build a wall. You've already got an ocean. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you quits in unless you work in tourism. All right, we'll talk about that maybe next time. Good to talk, Steve. Okay, Thank mate. you. Bye. Yep. And actually, we have managed to get in touch with Blair Fix, so we can talk about this idea of hierarchies and power and how much that influences the uh, spread of income in a community. So we'll do that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll be back then too. See you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.